What's poppin' everyone? It's the Puerto Rican Powerhouse, the Mike for Hire, the podcast for the at Puerto Rican Kaiju himself, Christian Joel Ramos, back at it again with a brand new review. And today we're going to discuss the, I guess you can call this remake of the original film that came out in the 80s. That was a remake of a book that came out in the 60s. You don't know what it is. Warner Brothers own and HBO Max is owned too because it's on HBO Max. Dune. Now, this property was brought to you by Denny Villeneuve. I'm sorry, I think I said his name right because I have a tendency of not saying names right. My fault. Screenplay by John Spat. Denny Villeneuve. Yeah, <laughs> said too fast. Denny Villeneuve uh, and Eric Roth. So, based on the book by Dune by Frank Herbert. Y'all got that? Bet. Okay. Produced by Mary Parent as well as director Denny Villeneuve and uh, Kale Border and Joe Cara. Caracciolo Jr. Sorry, my Italian's a little bit off right now. So excuse me if I cannot say it right. So my fault. I know the double C's are like a chess sound. So there we go. Uh, it stars Timothy Chalamet. All right. Rebecca Ferguson. Oscar Isaac. Josh Brolin. You got freaking Thanos in this bitch. You got um, Stella Stellan Skazgard. I believe is the father of the uh, Skazgard sons. I mean, I'm assuming, yes, that's a dude from Thor. Okay, making sure it's the right guy. You also got the animal Dave Bautista in this, in this mug. And you got who else? Who, let me just scroll through. Stephen McKinley, Henderson, okay. Uh, Zendaya, uh, Shang Chang, who I'm personally not familiar with. I mean, I've seen his face somewhere, but I can't really claim any movies I've seen him in. Uh, he was in Red Cliff. And Red Cliff too, so I know that was like a whole uh, big epic Chinese tale, the three, the romance of three kingdoms, right there. Uh, he was in a bunch of other martial arts films that I've not seen either. So excuse my ignorance, I haven't seen him. But he's he looks he was good in this film. He wasn't playing a martial arts though. He was playing like the vizier, like the like the brains of the operation when it comes to the kingdom. So he's the guy that pretty much runs the paperwork and litigation for the king. So he is, is um, gosh, why is the word escaping me right now? He's my, what is he? If I'm a king, I know he's the hand of the king, but that's just the, that's just the title. His job would be, he is the guy that holds all his accounts. You know what I'm talking about? The guy that reads the scrolls and uh, holds all the meetings and all that stuff. His secretary, I guess, assistant. We'll call it that because I, the word is escaping me. I don't know why it's escaping me. Anyways, who else is in this movie? Man, they got a star-studded blockbuster cast. You got Sharon Duncan Brewster. You got Charlotte Rampling. Jason Momoa. You got Aquaman here, too. You got Javier Bardem. I mean, come on. And then cinematography for Greg Fraser. Edited by Joe Walker, music by Hans Zimmer. Oh my gosh, like this movie was made to be perfect. Like it has what I would consider like the lottery. If I was to pick the best of the best, this is it. This movie by all accounts should not fail and it didn't, but I will say why it could have failed. Now, I'm not familiar with the Dune books, but I had a coworker years ago who lived by the Dune books. He was a big reader growing up. He wasn't big on the TV. Our parents were, uh, him, weren't big on him watching too much television, so they made sure he read, and obviously not just school books. So he read science fiction novels because at least he could read about science fiction if you can't watch science fiction shows, right? So he's reading Dune, and it's an amazing book. It's his dad's book, and he's telling me about Dune, explaining the plot to me about Dune, and I'm like, there are a lot of parallels to Star Wars in this damn thing. And then I, it kind of struck in my mind. This movie, this franchise, this book was the basis for 
most of George Lucas's vision of Star Wars. Controversial take, maybe, but I want somebody to actually quote, find a quote or ask Lucas himself if he was inspired by this novel, because there are a lot of similarities. It just don't go for the wayside, like too similar, like especially like me, a guy that's a big Star Wars guy. I just finished the Clone Wars like not too long ago. I just finished Rebels not too long ago because I was late to those because I watched Rebels on TV when it was on Disney XD. But it's not the same if you haven't caught it from the beginning because they don't play a lot of repeats. Then they repeat the last previous five or six episodes. They don't repeat previous seasons. So I had to wait for something like a Disney Plus to rewatch Rebels from start to finish to get the whole context of the characters in the show. So the fact that a lot of stuff from there and from Clone Wars series, which I grew up watching actually in real time, I'm like, hold up, Spice trades and wars like this is so similar and yes they took a lot they were inspired let's just leave it like that i don't accuse anybody of theft or anything like that because that would be something that can land me in court and possibly uh, i can't afford it so (laughs) that being said um imitation is a form of flattery so yes lucas took some aspects of this and kind of gave his own george lucas take on it and that's what I like, that he got inspired by this novel that wasn't made into a film until his film got greenlit. So who's to say if Star Wars never got made, the Dune movie would never have gotten greenlit because it was too out there and too over the top and larger than life. But Lucas, by, get this, by Lucas making it work, something like this could actually exist. Huh? People can't take it like that, huh? It's, a, it's called a coexisting, cohabiting. <laughs> All right, so let's get to the actual plot of the story. I'm going to give you the quote-unquote Wikipedia paragraph because I am not a professional. I'm sorry. I don't have the time to write nice, beautiful columns to explain the film in five minutes. I'm very long-winded. I am very detail-based, and I have a form of ADHD that's not been diagnosed because I catch everything in a movie, all the Easter eggs, all the background, just the smallest emotional characters. And I think that comes from a long life of playing a lot of video games. (laughs) I don't know where else that shit would come from. So the movie starts in the year 10,191, way past my lifespan for sure. Duke Leto of House Atreides, ruler of the ocean planet Caladan, is assigned by the Padishah Emperor Shaddam Corino IV to replace House Harkonnen as the Fife, the rulers of Arrakis, which is a desert planet. So this man was going from an ocean planet, living paradise, and he sent him to the desolate wasteland planet for some reason. So Arrakis is a harsh desert planet? Wow. Who would have thought? And the only source of spice... Spice being a valuable substance that extends human vitality and is critical for interstellar travel, meaning hyperspeed, warp drive, whatever you want to call it, it feels that. In reality, Shaddam intends to have House Harkonnen stage a coup to retake the planet with the aid of the Emperor Sardaukar and his troops, eradicating House Atreides, whose influence threatens Shaddam's control. So... Leto is apprehensive but sees the political advantages of controlling the spice planet and forming an alliance with its native population, skilled fighters known as the Freemen. And Leto's concubine Lady Jessica is an acolyte of the Ben Gesereti, an exclusive sisterhood whose members possess advanced physical and mental abilities, uh, aka Jedis. <laughs> similarities, again, these are similarities, not accusations. As part of the breeding program, the Ben Gesereti instructed Jessica to bear a daughter whose son 
would become the, excuse me, these words are weird, Kisat Hadarash, a Messianic super being with persistent ability. Instead, she bore his son, Paul. Throughout his life, Paul is trained by Lettles aides Duncan Idaho, Gurney Halleck, and Mentaturif Hawat, pretty much all of the generals of the, the Lord's Army. While Jessica trains Paul in vengeous already discipline, Paul confides in Jessica and Duncan that he is troubled by visions of the future because of these visions, the Reverend Mother Gauss Helen visits Caladan and suspects Paul to be a deadly test to assess his impulse of control, which she passes, luckily. So he is not some sort of uh, explosive matter. He's something that can be controlled, and, and that's a big deal if this guy is one of persuasion and power, especially when he's a lord of a kingdom. So, I mean, that actually is a good reason to keep their eyes on him. So we got spice mining on the planet Arrakis, um, it's essentially setting up the whole thing in the world and the whole caste system between the freemen and those who keep conquering them over the centuries. These people have constantly been conquered for their spice, and it's sad that it's generations and generations, and now someone takes over the kingdoms, and then the more stronger emperor comes over. So they never had a ch fighting chance with the advanced technologies to come from different off-worlds. So we you see at nightfall, the outsiders harvest the spice to avoid the heat of the day. Apparently, it gets so crazy hot that it's something you don't want to deal with. Yeah, you only have to expect to do it at night because if you do it in the daytime, you can easily dehydrate instantaneously. Again, these are harsh desert planets in different worlds. I mean, the, the people here look even different because of the spice. They're over the time being, I guess, exposed to it. Their eyes turn all blue. And not just like blue eyes. Like literally the white parts of the irises and all that stuff is all blue. Like a strong blue color because of it. And they got some immunity. So some of the sands, like not immunity. I wouldn't say they're impervious to sandstorms. But you know, they can go out there and, and deal with the harsh weathers where the off-worlders have to use special suits to stay hydrated. Where all they really must do is just put on a robe and keep it simple. And just go out there and blend in with the desert harsh desert environments so the off-world is out here leeching uh, colonizing you know this seems very familiar <laughs> i'm just saying i don't want to get too geopolitical in this bitch but you know it, it's there it's implied this is definitely a political science fiction drama so there are elements of reality in this even though it is set in a very larger than life setting it's very much using real life tropes so these people are out here ravaging the planet of its resources, cruel to the inhabitants from there, the natives of that planet. Um, by imperial decree, they rule Arrakis. So this is the year 1191. Caladan homeworld, House of Tratus. Sandstorms, sandworms, the local freemans, and the hallucinogens of the spice. So they're getting high off this spice, people. They're out here harvesting pretty much opium, is what it sounds like. Uh, Lightspeed travel to fuel, but that's what it's for. This is not supposed to be smoked. This is not some sort of herb like weed. It is literally for the sake of warp speed and getting places faster. But don't be surprised if you see so. I mean, if you, if you, if you, I'm not saying you should puff gasoline, but. I'm assuming the same would happen. You would hallucinate if you were to chug. You know, let's just leave it there. I'm not trying to give kids ideas. I'm just saying. 
Permanent markers, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> so here we go on where the Imperial Court comes to acknowledge them and says, you are now the true rulers of this planet. Good luck with it. Make the Emperor proud. So the young Prince Paul wants to join the warriors to Arrakis as they're heading off to Arrakis. And of course, these are the elements. There's people out there you have to fight. He's not ready. He's been trained for combat, but boy, you ain't ready by a long shot. Not at all. But he had a bad dream where he, he dreamed his best buddy, his guardian, Duncan Idaho. My gosh, what a name. These names are so pre- Star Wars, like they sound way too regular to be like Duncan Idaho. Like, come on, that sounds like a pro wrestler from the six, from the fifties or sixties. Like, that does not sound like somebody from a different off world. Like, you know, like at least the Game of Thrones people had some. Well, you know what? Again, I can't compare science fiction from the sixties to science fiction from the last thirty years. Like, a lot has changed, and we've gotten more mythological with stuff and more creative with names. But this is the name from the sixties, so let, they're sticking with it. So let them stick with the era. Okay, so, and also, if they're regular people from our time, why wouldn't they have regular names? They're not going to have, like, uh, odd-ass names, per se. I mean, you could, yes, because of travel, exposure to other planets, other cultures, but also, this novel was so damn creative, the names are the last thing you're focusing on. I'm focusing a lot on it because I am very much focusing on the wrong shit. <laughs> okay, so... He summons to a meeting. It's a test to see if he's worthy of the way. I mean, sorry, I wrote that in my notes. It's not the way. This is not. The, this is not. This is not the Mandalorian way. This is the people, the the witches over here. Um, they try to threaten him with a poison needle if he, if he doesn't survive the pain box. Now the pain box is not what it sounds like. It is not some ravaging vagina. <laughs> it is a actual box where he has to stick his hand in, and there's. I guess it plays at a certain frequency that would normally mess with the human brain and like make you go nuts or something and you feel some sort of pain but because he's one of their chosen ones he managed to he felt the pain he definitely felt that shit but he manages to survive it and if not they're going to kill him on sight his mom knew exactly what was supposed to happen he was supposed to be born a woman not a man he didn't choose his his, his uh, gender identity it came came with him and it's not his fault that he is not because again his his Man, how confusing this is going to get. If he was a woman, the son she would have bared would have been the one. But in reality, this character throughout this film starts acting like he's the one. So maybe they overestimated and probably didn't understand that this is the... Because there was a legend say that, you know, the child you bear is going to be the, the hero that we're waiting for. What if it's him? Huh? Huh? Who says these things are 100% accurate? Plus... How can you control someone's birth? I mean, then again, this is science fiction. They can do anything. Nope. It's still natural births. <laughs> so they don't have in vitro where they get the, uh, the choose the sex and gender, whatever you want to call it, of the child. Um, so it's just a natural birth. And even though it's in year 10,000 something, gosh, 8,000 years in the future, who knows what technologies were lost from our times. So, yes. We move on from here. He's coming to a meeting. And they want to test him, and he survives it. Whew. Mom's like, what a relief, you don't die. He's like, what? <laughs> so he passes the test, but he was lucky. His mother was only there. Her sole purpose of existence, according to this, to this group, uh, was to bear daughter. And she failed at it, so she is useless in their eyes, which is some messed up shit. 
So she was made for the sake of breeding and creating one to unite them all in space and time. Meaning that child, that grandchild she was supposed to bear was supposed to be the one. But again, I have a theory that Paul is the one. The one they seek that's going to end the wars, the stars. <laughs> Sorry, did I say that too loud, loud? So the land of the new people here, right? The new world. They take a tour on it with the huge walled city that protects them from the outside elements and it's almost like they live in some sort of kingdom they're afraid that the commoners will kill them you know i mean why would they ever assume that right so the freeman sand dance to survive apparently what this is is almost like you move at a certain step so that way the sand monsters excuse me sand worms they're giant worms uh will eat you alive and these things are so massive they can just it's their mouths are ridiculously large so they walk a certain way so they don't feel them under them. And that way they're able to survive, uh, not being detected by these giant beasts. So the Freeman messengers, here, here's what goes on here, right? The Freeman sand dance survives. So we know that it's a way they survived all these years, all these decades, all these centuries, all these eons. The hunter seeker tries to kill the prince. That's a fancy way of saying the assassin. I don't know why they call it like that. <laughs> so he is definitely on someone's radar because since he's next in line to the throne, who knows what he can do that's a threat to the emperor at the helm who's actually in the middle of sabotaging his family. So this guy's paranoid because he's going to do the exact same thing he thinks people are going to do to him. Son of a bitch. Okay, so... Duncan is sharing his knowledge of the Freeman people because he spends some time with them and explains how the desert is part of their a part of them. It's almost like an out-of-body experience. Um, they go to the spice fields and meet a woman in charge, and she is a Freeman herself. But she's cool because she isn't here to kill them. She works with both Freeman and the Empire, so she's kind of like the liaison to both clans, groups, whatever you want to call it, and both sides like her. So whatever she's doing is right. She's not there to be a fighter. She's just someone there's a diplomat. That's the word I'm looking for, a damn diplomat. <laughs> so the Freeman messenger and the Lord have a respectful yet tense disagreement about the world and coexisting. It's, again, political. It's science fiction politics. So I get that they both think they're right and they're doing it for the better good. But alas, their views clash and this is why things happen. So the Freeman doctor made them. Okay, so first I put her, she's a Freeman field like a farmer but she's a doctor so she's an herbalist there we go so this herbalist doctor made them stealth suits to survive in the wilds of the uh, atrakis because uh, these suits almost like suits you see in most modern video games these days are very much like lighter than your typical giant armored suits but any kind of urine sweat uh, it comes out of your body it absorbs it and filters it so it becomes drinkable drinkable water into your body like oh that's okay so it's almost like recycling over and over again so that way you can stay hydrated out in the desert so they head out and see a friendly tank broken down this big tank not like a small tank like the size of a freaking it, this thing is enormous it's almost like i, I would call it a fortress on tread on, on treads it's huge and um she warns them about the sandworms and sees them from far because they're all in these giant like choppers that look like dragonflies and they spot one in the distance. They're like, hey, you got to get there and get out. So they send one of their choppers to put the magnets on it to kind of lift it up in the air so they can escape the sandworm. Uh, so the anchor is jammed and the worm is closing on them too close that 
They're like, so how many can we save? About nine of us total could save. We could save about nine of them. Oh, but there's 12 people on her. No, it was 21. It was 21 people on board. They can last only save 18. But at least 18 saved is better than none saved. So the young prince, he's out there and he's in a trance. So again, the hallucinations of the, sand, of the spices in the air are messing with him because he's not, he's not, he's the first time dealing with them with the elements. And he could easily have gotten Eden if it wasn't for the help of his trainer and also General Gurney, Gurney Halleck, played by Josh Brolin, who's like, snap out of it. Let's get back into the ship before you're goner and saves his life. So this is one moment where we see that the world is a dangerous environment. That's just It's not just about people fighting back. It's also about the elements fighting you. So, so right, the king's right-hand man saves him. Uh, the Legion of Sadakar are being recruited by the Emperor. These people seem bad. They seem similar to the Stormtroopers in Star Wars, but even more um, more religious, like a dark religion. Like They seem like they're chanting evil enchant enchantments. They're pretty much coming across like complete and utter villains. Like, you can tell these guys are bad. They're definitely dark in the dark arts or dark magic or something of a source. They just come up very cold, menacing, robotic, whatever you want to call them. They just don't seem like typical people. They're part of a cult-like, like you know, a cult-like group. So back at the palace, uh, Duke Leto, uh, Atreides, he sees the maiden of his concubine dead, and he wonders what's going on. And it's because there's a traitor in the midst, and that traitor is none other than Doctor Wellington Yu, A.K.A. Chang Chang, the actor his right hand man, the hand of the king, the guy that runs the show, and apparently he sided with this evil people because he's uh, getting betrayed, and that's when the shields are down and shit just pops off, and you're like, what the hell's going on here? So this is when they get a sneak attack tonight, and of course all the, all the Duke's forces are getting ready for battle the way they can, the best way possible. So... We got a scenario here. We got a big action sequence, and we're halfway through the film. Like, okay, the first big action sequence of the whole movie. Like, yes, we see, sadly, a scene where previously this giant sandworm ate this giant tankard slash fortress, and some people didn't survive it. Sad to say, some did, and some couldn't, or actually, a lot of them couldn't. It was a crazy scene, nonetheless. So I kind of got lost in it because, again, this movie's two and a half hours long. People, it is hard. I mean, I, I had to pause it a few times to catch a couple things, but that's probably one thing that slipped it because that scene was epic because the worm just swallowed this giant thing whole. So how big was this damn worm? Okay, so move on here, please. Let's move on. So the prince and his mother, the queen, are captured. So the lords, so the, the duke, sorry, I keep saying lord because like freaking Game of Thrones. The duke sees his wife's maiden killed and then he's captured by the bad guys. The prince and his mother, the concubine, are captured as well, but by different people in the same empire. Um, duke Momoa's character here fends off enemy forces so they are able to su survive and sadly they were taken from hostage. He uses his quote-unquote Jedi mind tricks on his helicopter, right? So he uses the whole, using the voice to compel these brutes and they hit him hard enough. They're like, all right, get rid of this kid. He's getting annoying. And they did, he did it again. This time he did it right. And then the mom helped out using her voice because she's obviously OG at using that damn voice. And their the plane or helicopter crashes and they survive, but the enemies don't. So everyone in the room, uh, 
here is man, so much is happening. You got the Duke who somehow can reach his wife, and she uses her voice into his and somehow projects into his body as he's captured in this big war room, naked. And the voice kills almost everyone in that room. And then Duke pretty much dies after this. Sorry, Duke Leto. Leto dies. Leto Treyas. So the Prince Paul is hallucinating on Spice in the Desert. Again, he's mad at his mother for making him a freak of nature. Hey, I guess that's something to really dread about and why they are looking for him because he's he's a danger to this empire's downfall. Uh, so he's mad at his mom and they, they, they are caught in the dune of the desert, no pun intended. They're going to like a pit where they try to escape and somehow they reach the surface eventually because they breach it when he hits a side panel from the, sh- from the ship where they landed and they find a chopper flying over and it's Duncan who's Jason Momoa's character who is still alive. I thought this guy was dead. Hold the phone. I guess not. I guess he still survived. Golly. So, okay. So, he survived this scene. Oh, so this is where the palace attack. Yeah, for sure. So, as Prince Paul and Lady Jessica are back at their home, the enemies have infiltrated their base and are hunting them down. Paul and Jessica have to escape again after trying to escape the first time and getting captured. Duncan, this time, stays and takes the ultimate sacrifice to fend off and kill as many of these guys as possible. But sadly, he does die. R.I.P. Duncan, Idaho. So they escape with the Freeman woman, the herbalist, and she knows the desert very well, and she's going to help them survive the desert so they are not found easily by these off-worlders who are trying to take the whole planet over and essentially send them somewhere that can be safe. So they run for their life against the sandworm and survive somehow because as he was about to trip Paul, it was this close from getting eaten by the worm. The worm stops, and I guess somebody else triggered it. I feel bad for that guy. So whoever footsteps those were, uh, yeah, there you go. You're done. You're a goner, buddy. So as she tries to run the enemies, catch up and with her and kill her, but she takes them with her. This is the herbalist. Oh, I wrote these notes down. They go. Oh my gosh. She now she has to go off on her on her own. The, the bad guys from the empire here uh, see her, but she just hits the floor. The floor. It's a freaking desert. The sand three times. And Papa the sandworm takes them all and they all die. Again, paying the ultimate sacrifice. But at least the bad guys went down with her. So they run for dear life against the sandworms. And this all happens. So luckily, it, the thumper uh, and someone else unfortunately activated it. And then this Freeman doctor, uh, sadly, who is now not with us. So <sighs> towards the end of the film, it gets interesting. After this whole outrunning this evil empire... And mind you, you've seen the uh, guy who who is the head of this empire looks like a freaking Jabba the Hutt ripoff. And my gosh, it's got to be something intense because... Spoiler alert for anyone who has not read the book. My co-worker has read the books back in the day because she's that old and read them back in the day when they first came out. Tells me this emperor is supposed to be some sort of pedophile. And I'm like, how are they going to cover this shit in the next film? Are they going to really go full heel and then... Because he's already a bad guy. We established he's a villain, but do you have to make him such a monster? I mean, not that we're going to show him do the axe, but come on, man. Come on. I'm like, it's going to get really dark, isn't it? <laughs> of course, this movie's not rated R. It's P13, so a lot of families can see it, which is actually interesting because uh, I think the original was supposed to be rated R. Let me double check here. So let's get to the end of this, shall we? 
let's finish it up. Towards the end, so they finally are on dry land, on in the middle of the sand ocean. But they're not alone. The Freemen are there, and it's their actual base. This is the place where she was gonna, the doctor was gonna send them there, but she didn't survive. So now they have to convince them to, I guess, take their side because they're on their same side now. So they have to fight. She wants a truce. To, of course, Jessica and Paul want a truce, but the way the Freeman ways, uh, they're like, nah, we're gonna fight to the death. So Chani, who is Zendaya, gives the prince an honorable knife to fight with because he has no no weapon on him. And he fights their fights their best warrior, and he has never killed him twice. He's got, he had an opportunity to kill him, and this is where the leader of the Freeman is like, "Why is your son not killing this guy? Like trying to get him to like quit? This is not how our rules are." He's like, "Oh, because he's never killed a man." In the end, Paul does kill him, and after asking to yield twice, and there's no yielding, only death. And then he's now considered one of them, one of the Freeman. So he actually is part of their community, and. He is the heir of the house that's been taken over because of uh, treason or some sort of a political uh, tragedy here. So, yeah, now this is where we see a lot. I mean, again, there's a lot in touch about this, but these are the points that stuck out to me the most because, like, towards the end, this is no different than a movie about knights in shining armor or any kind of political intrigue. It's the same exact film, just guys. It's freaking filter is science fiction off world but it could be set in modern times it could be set in medieval times it's still a genius plot of you know this guy is gonna join the people that he's afraid he was told to be afraid of who are now gonna join forces and help and this is literally like game of thrones where Jon snow befriends the wildlings and then uses the wildlings to be part of his forces so he can take over all the kingdoms uh, so you know, and take over King's Landing and all that shit. So it's similar tropes that you've seen in many films and TV series and fantasy drama, and any kind of story. And it's not bad. It's just again, this movie was good. It was great. A lot of people loved it. Was it for me? It wasn't for me. And I'm not hating on it. I'm not saying it's a bad movie. This definitely deserves four and a half stars. I'm giving it just justice. But there's just certain films that if you're not invested so deeply into it and the story and never read the books, I understand the larger-than-life characters. The Dune movie was supposed to come out a year ago. Like, obviously, the pandemic was pushed, so there's a lot of people that were anticipating. People who read the books are, like, huge fans of the books. People who are huge fans of the books and hated the 82 film that got destroyed back then. And it's something that's definitely been in pop culture reference everything i mean i can go you know it's from rick and morty to star wars of course to even spongebob i mean you'll see this in i think it was beetlejuice like they all reference the sandworms they all reference quotes from the film like it it means something it's something that's in the zeitgeist it's in pop culture but this film was just so long-winded and again it might have been serviceable better as a series i think i mean it was a great film I definitely would like love this film, but if you're gonna ask me, if there's replay value. There is not replay value at all. I'm sorry. Movies this epic, I see them once and that's it. I've seen them. I've seen the movie in my head. I don't need to see it again. I don't need to relive this sequence. I mean, I might see it once more now that I'm not taking notes. Just seeing it for my pleasure, and hopefully, I love it. 
because when you're watching a movie that's almost three hours long, taking notes the whole time, it does drain you. But then again, I, I split this in three parts so I can really watch the film, and I did watch it. The plot seems pretty straightforward, though. It does not seem a thing too convoluted, which is not always a bad thing. Sometimes an easy plot is better for, and more serviceable than making it so complex. Like, again, it, there are parts that are a lot of uh, setup, or what do you call that? The um, exposition or something. But it's much needed in a film of this size because you're trying to, you're trying to show the audience the world, um, the politics, into one... You're putting a lot into this because if the movie does... Not, it does not warrant sequels, then at least you have the basis of the world. Like, okay, this one kingdom is trying to take over the universe and they have essentially sent out their people out like pawns to die, but I don't understand what purpose because they're getting too much power and they're getting too much control of something because instead of dying, they're actually succeeding. So, again, the intrigue is there. And the characters are great. And the film seems very serviceable. That for me, it's just not my cup of tea. Not to that severity. I like the concept of it. Hell, even the books sound amazing to look and read into, but I don't want to sit here and just shit on Den Denis Villeneuve's uh, portfolio and line of work because he did uh, Blade Runner 2049, and I love that film. But that movie obviously was also one that I've only seen once, and that was enough for me to see. Um, he did Arrival, another movie I've said I enjoyed that I began I've only seen once. Uh, he also did Sicario, but I haven't seen Sicario, but I hear people see Sicario over and over again. And then he's also doing a Cleopatra movie coming out soon, and he's doing the second Dune film here. Oh, it's a Dune series. Okay, so he's moving this into a series. I mean, so he's doing the movie and a series. I want to see how this thing plays out. He's setting up a world, maybe for HBO Max, setting up a series for HBO Max. But yeah, I mean, this guy, he's getting, he gets, again, I give him four and a half stars, so you can't critique me or that I'm, that I'm, that I'm being, uh, being unfair because it deserves all the best. Was it the best film ever? No. But was it up there? It was up there. Again, but it's the kind of movie that I literally almost fell asleep watching because it was so much exposition. And if you don't know what exposition is, it's when you serve a narrative with the background, essentially inserting the background to give information of the world, give you a feel for the world, which is good in theory. But then when you get too much of it and it looks identical, oh, sand, more sand. Oh, look, more sand in a rock. You know what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't change. The setting doesn't change much. Like, they did exposition in Mandalorian as well, but it was a lot less exposition in there. Literal exposition and more of like moving it a little bit forward. So this thing felt slow at times. But that's not always a bad thing for the sheer fact that some movies need time to give you uh, not just a sense of feeling, but a sense of immersion. And the film definitely was serviceable and it made you feel like you were there. Like the immersion of this is like definitely like close to VR. Especially if you were to watch it in the theaters. But again, then again, I did not. But so... Again, if I saw this in theaters in one soup, I would probably have a completely different opinion. And maybe that's what I should do. Maybe I should pay some money and watch it in theaters. And maybe I might feel differently about it. Or maybe I'll just watch it one more time and, and just without taking notes. And maybe I might enjoy it more because I'm not pausing every so often, which could be the case for me. But then again, I'm a reviewer, so I got to do what I got to do to service you people. So thank you for tuning in this nice, long-winded review. I am the podcast mercenary, Christian Del Ramos, signing off until next time. Thank you all for tuning in, and if you stayed this long, you're the best. 
I appreciate all my listeners and, of course, remember, guys, art subjective. So a movie you might love and dearly might be hated by somebody else, and you're both are right because at the end of the day, it's an opinion because that's how subjective art is. So, again, don't take any reviews to heart. This is just me and my personal preferences. But as you can see, let the record show I gave this movie a great review, even though it wasn't for me like that. So, until next time, I'm out. Peace.